episode 92 of Board Game Blitz, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network and a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes to explain the specific types of games that you like to someone who didn't know hobby games existed until 10 seconds ago. Board Game Blitz is sponsored by Grave Fox Games. Ambie's still on maternity leave, so I have another special guest co-host joining me today. First, we discuss a couple games we've played recently, like Tussie Mussy and Ghost Stories. Then, we're discussing the idea of omni-gamers versus gamers who claim to only like one type of game. And now, here are your hosts, Crystal and Paula. All right, so Ambie is still on maternity leave, which means we have a very special guest with us today. And by us, I mean me. It's just me and my special guest. And I'm so excited. I can't even speak well. Please welcome to the show, Paula Demain. Paula! Yay! Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me, Crystal. Ambie, thank you for having babies and taking a break so that I could be on the podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure she did it just for you. <laughs> I know she did. We talked about it um, nine... 10 months ago. How- <laughs> yes, perfect. <laughs> oh, Paula. So I have been a fan of yours since basically the first second I saw your content start appearing online. But for those uh, Blitzketeers who may not be familiar with your work, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and kind of tell everybody what you've been doing, what you're up to and all of that n- nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, so my name's Paula, if you don't know me already, and I make a sketch comedy series called Things Get Dicey, and it is all about the board gaming hobby. So yeah, it's sketch comedy all about board games, and And if you like board games, these jokes are for you. Thank you so much. I love it so much. It makes me laugh, so (laughs) I always hope it at least makes one other person laugh other than me. So yay, one other person. That's the main board game related thing. I do some other podcasts that are not board game related, but hey, you're listening to a podcast right now, so I'm going to pimp those out real quick. You know, if you like fiction, specifically romantic comedy, I make a fiction podcast that is a holiday rom-com a la uh, Hallmark Channel Christmas movie. It's called Deck the Halls with Matrimony, and you can find that under the production company Sasquatch Radio, and that's spelled sass, like sassy. Quatch, Q-U-A-C-H. There's no T because it's not actually like Bigfoot. Anyway, that's that. And then uh, I have another podcast that I guess is board game adjacent called Death by Monsters. I host that with Matthew Jude and Nick Murphy, which is how it's board game adjacent. But we don't talk about board games, even though all three of us make board game content. We talk about monsters, mysteries, and the unknown. And that's a nonfiction podcast. So yeah, those are those are my three like main things right now. The clips that you guys upload to Twitter specifically or like social media of the Death by Monsters, like I, (laughs) every time I am just like, these three people, I want to listen to you all talk forever, basically. Thank you. And oh boy, if you only heard the unedited versions of the podcast, it would feel like you were listening to us talk forever. (laughs) I mean, I, I, I know that Matthew Jude is shy like in person sometimes but I know that once you get him talking and same thing with Nick like the two of them could go forever for sure they just know how to like turn it on yeah and then just I it is so fun I do a lot of improv in my like regular life and it's just always so fun when you get to talk to people who are really good at like improvising off of whatever you've just said or like going with a bit and they're both so good at that and it's just the most fun 
I, it's interesting. I know we're gonna go. This is this episode is gonna be just like my past episode with the guest host. We're gonna go on some tangents, and hopefully everybody's okay with that. But I I was in an improv troupe in high school, so obviously like not professional, not super great. But like one of the drama teachers decided to do an improv group, and it was a lot of fun. And I'm a big fan of the TV show The Good Place, and Mark Evan Jackson, mm-hmm. who plays Sean in that show and also hosts The Good Place, the podcast, has talked at length about how improv is a really valuable skill for just about anybody to learn and can help with a lot of different things like doing business presentations and just being a little bit more confident in your speaking skills on a daily basis. And I've been actually like in the back of my brain rattling around with, man, should I take an improv class again? And I kind of want to, but my schedule is so busy. (laughs) Do it. No, boy, I can relate to that. There's one specific school, like for three years, I've been like, I'm going to take an improv class there and I just don't have time. So I haven't. But yeah, I would say for anyone who is curious, like let go of the fear of needing to be funny when you do improv and just like try it if you're curious about it, because it really is just learning how to think on your feet and listen and be present with everyone around you. And if you can tap into that, it really opens up. You'll surprise yourself with the things that you come up with. And then funny things will just naturally happen because you're making it up as you go. You're thinking on your feet, something funny will happen. You don't have to worry about trying to be the funny person. So yeah, I say do it. Improv is great for, like you said, all sorts of things. Absolutely. And I know a lot of people kind of in life in general, you kind of spend time just waiting for the other person to finish talking so you can say what you want to say. But improv kind of teaches you to, yeah, again, actively listen to what they're saying and use it in a meaningful way. And I think that that's, that makes you a better listener to in general. Like really you should be paying attention to what other people are saying and not just waiting for your turn to speak. Yeah, that is such a good point. I love that. I hadn't even thought of that specifically, but you're so right. Yeah, because in improv, it's like respond to the very last thing that the other person just said to you. So yeah, you can't be in your head thinking about, okay, well, next I'm going to talk about this. You have to be listening to what they say so that you can build off whatever they've said, and then they'll build off whatever you've said. It's just, ah, it's great community and teamwork. It is. And I think most people assume it's just about comedy. And obviously the end result often is, but it doesn't have to be. So yeah. some board games that we've been playing recently. I believe I've spoken about this at least a little bit in the past. Back in 2018, Jen Cant and Buttonshy teamed up to do a board game design contest. And one of the winners of that contest was an 18 card game called Tussie Mussy. It was developed by Elizabeth Hargrave, who we've mentioned at length on the podcast because she has now rocketed to board game fame with Wingspan. And my friend Kathy printed out the print and play after the contest. So I'd actually played it before, but now it has been released in proper from Button Shy Games. And I've gotten to play the full production copy and also the solo mode, Pussy Mussy Flower Shop, which is the solo mode, was designed by Mike Mullins. I want to give him credit Ooh. for that. So Tussie Mussy is an 18 card wallet game similar to the other button shy games where you are, it's kind of an I split you choose mechanism, but instead of actually splitting things into different groups, you are always presenting uh, one of the other players with two cards, one of which is face up and one of which is face down. The other player will then choose which one of the cards they want to add to their display. Cards that are face up are considered to be in their bouquet. Cards that are face down are considered to be 
I don't remember what the word for it is, but basically it's oh. like an artifact of some kind. It's like a an item. It's a it's a it's a like a keepsake. Keepsake. There you go. Yep. So face down is a keepsake. Face up is a bouquet. So they choose either the one that they can see and know what it is, or the one that's face down. So there's a lot of meta gaming in. Do you put the one that you think they really want face up or face down? What about if there's one you really want? And you go back and forth until everyone has four cards at the end of the round. Then you score cards. All of the cards have different scoring conditions on them. Some of them are based on the colors of the other cards or the placement face up or face down of the other cards or how many uh, of a specific icon are on some of the cards. And then you play three full rounds of the game and whoever has the most points at the end wins. It's honestly at its core very, very simple, but very elegant. I'm a broken record at this point because it's the thing I say all the time, but the games that tend to impress me the most are the ones that are quick and easy to learn, but have interesting strategic decisions within them. And this fits that to a T. So I I loved it when I played the print and play version of it. uh, And I love the production copy now. I don't actually, I believe there might be some mechanical differences from that version to this version, but it has been long enough since I played the original version that I'm not certain what those might be. I know the, the language has changed in the rule book a little bit. And the artwork uh, is by Beth Sobel, who we've also talked about a lot on this podcast because I love her stuff. Her stuff's so great. It's just yeah. beautiful. The game is, it's so nice to look at. And I love the flavor text on the cards. It like tells you like what the flowers meant in like Victorian, like when you were sending the flowers. And I guess maybe this is where we get our like idea of like the meaning of flowers today. Like if you send carnations, it means this. If you send yellow roses, it means friendship or whatever I don't remember and I love that that detail is on the cards with the flowers too absolutely and that's yeah that's what the game is based on basically is this Victorian tradition of flower giving and that flowers meant different things whenever I hear yellow rose all I can think of is a Dolly Parton song from the 80s called yellow roses (laughs) nice I like that reference (laughs) I'm not a big country music fan but I listened to a lot of Dolly in the 80s so then for those of you who are in, who do enjoy solo gaming, the expansion, the solo expansion that Mike Mullins designed basically has you playing against an AI. There are a small deck of six turn cards, and those cards will tell you how the cards that are getting selected from get laid out, whether they are face up or face down. And then they give you constraints as to how the cards can get added to both your tableau and the AI's tableau. So for instance, the turn card might say, place both cards face up and then add one to your tableau face down and add one to the AI's tableau face up. So you still get to choose something, but the AI is always going to end up with something as well. And sometimes the AI will have to take a face down card so you won't get to see what they're getting. And the AI also keeps cards between rounds. So in round one, they have four cards. In round two, they will end up with five. And in round three, they will have six cards in front of them. So you really have to work hard to outscore the AI. Uh, When I played this on Thursday... I beat the AI by one point and I was just, oof, <laughs> it was tough. So nice. I re- yeah, I liked the solo mode. It was fun. I think this one, especially if you're, you know, throw it in your purse, throw it in your pocket. If you're at an airport waiting for a flight or something else, like it's small enough that you could really break this out just about anywhere. So I'm really excited that it has a solo mode, but honestly, the whole thing is just great. That's awesome. I've played, so I was really excited. We came back from Shucks and like, 
um, my Kickstarter copy of Tessie Mussy had arrived and I was super pumped. And we played the regular version. How do you refer to the, the multiplayer version? That's what I'm going to call it. We played the multiplayer version, but I haven't tried the solo version yet. But that, it sounds really interesting listening to you talk about it. So maybe later today I'll be uh, trying the solo mode. Yeah, I really liked it a lot. So that was Tussie Mussy, designed by Elizabeth Hargrave and published by Button Shy Games. Okay, well, I, I like I just said, I also played some Tussie Mussy recently, but even more recently, just last night, uh, we played Ghost Stories, which is a game that we have had in our collection for so long and haven't played in years. Um, and we're like, you know what we should do? We should play Ghost Stories again. Remember how hard it is? We'll probably lose. Well, and it's October, so ghost stories it feels felt very right. appropriate. Right? It was. It was. I was like, yeah, this is great. Halloween's coming up. So we played Ghost Stories. So Ghost Stories is designed by Antoine Bauza, and it's published by Repos. At least my, my copy is. Uh, I don't know if there are multiple editions of it or not. With games this old, sometimes it's really hard to keep track. <laughs> they get published by, well, it's like we have this copy of Betrayal House in the Hill that is the fir- its first edition and like it's so different. Oh, so it's from- got the orange box then. Or- yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And has like the guy like clutching his werewolf changing face, yeah. you know, on the cover. And um, yeah, it's like completely different. And who who published that one? I think is different from like the second edition. Anyway, the so, tokens yeah, in that orange edition tell. are the worst because they're all specifically named, and you have to find the exact <laughs> right token. We <laughs> just don't, to be honest. We just find the first token. We're like, this says monster. It's a dog now, and we just because <laughs> it's too much work. Yep. yep. <laughs> but anyway, that's another spooky game. But we're talking about ghost stories. So in this game, you are Taoist monks, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I I hope I'm getting that correct. Um, but you're monks, basically, and you are trying to protect a village from the incarnation of the Lord of Hell. Uh, so getting dark, Wu Fang, and he has legions of ghosts that come in and haunt this town. And so basically in front of you, you have your player board and it has slots for three ghosts to be able to fill. And each player has their three slots. And even if you're playing with less than the maximum of four players, you still kind of play with the other, the non-player people. We played it two-player. And so we weren't controlling the other two characters in the game who weren't being used, but ghosts could still go into their slots. And we needed to be aware of how their ghost slots were filling and then whether or not they were losing their life points. Because once they lost all their life points, we could no longer access their special powers. So you have a special power, something you can do. Like mine was um, I could move to any space because I had like flying power. And uh, Lawson's was you could, he could re-roll die. So what you're doing is you're moving around through the village And each space has like a special power you can activate uh, when you land there that might let you get rid of a ghost or it might let you um, take some tokens that are going to help you exercise a ghost. Or instead of using the space's special power, if you're lined up in front of an actual ghost, you can then roll some dice and use some tokens to try and exercise the ghost. It's kind of pandemic-y in that way where you're like managing the ghosts that are coming out and figuring out which one do I need to get rid of, which one can stay right now. Um, If I let this one stay, it's going to move up and haunt this tile, and that means we can no longer access the special power on that tile. And you're basically going around trying to get rid of all these ghosts 
and move through the ghost deck until you get the incarnation of Wu Feng that has seeded into your deck. And he's like the big bad at the end that you have to try to defeat. And it is a notoriously difficult game. We definitely lost last night. (laughs) But it was pretty fun. And it's interesting because it's a game, like I said, that we've had in our collection for a long time. And I feel like we added it to our collection right around the time that we were getting kind of more serious about the hobby in a way like we had already had at that point we probably had just enough games to fill like one section of shelf and we were like hey should we get this game I heard it's like really challenging really difficult like let's try it and I feel like that marked the moment when we were really ready to get into heavier games and so we got that and we played it a few times right when we first got it and we were like, this is so hard. We still have this story of like the one time we won it by like one point on the last turn, you know, like we barely lost. And I'm like, I still think maybe we played it wrong and that's why we won. I think that <laughs> we everybody were... has a story like that about this game specifically. Accidentally cheating and didn't realize it. And then we just like didn't pull it out again for a really long time. And last night we were just like, hey, let's try it. Um, and I still really liked it. Like... Sometimes games from early in your collection don't always hold up later. Um, but I really feel like this one did. The mechanisms of it I still found really interesting. So, yeah, that's what I've been playing. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I actually haven't played Ghost Stories in a few years either. I think I've only played it once, actually. So a friend of mine who is also in the hobby, I bought it for him for a birthday present a number of years ago. And it was funny because he and his wife and their friends played it at least a couple of times without me. And then I went, came over and played it with them. And we were literally one turn away from beating Wu Fang. Yep. And they were so excited because it looked like it was going to happen and then it didn't. And I was like, oh man, my first play, I could have won Ghost Stories. And then literally like the next time they played it, which was without me again, they did beat Wu Fang. And I was like, no, I missed nice. out. Yeah. So it's just like that dread, the sense of dread, those ghosts coming, like it's not like pandemic where you're like, oh, look at the cute little cubes that are all over the map. It's like, oh no, this is not Casper the Friendly Ghost. This is a yeah. very scary ghost. This one is scary. And oh, look, there's a symbol at the bottom of the card that means another ghost is immediately going to come out. And oh, look, there's a symbol at the bottom of that card that means another ghost is. <laughs> we had that last night. We had like five ghosts came out at once. And then one other thing happened. And then Wu Fang came out. And we we're like, oh, actually, I think we could beat Wu Fang. I had like three green tokens. That means we just needed to roll one green die to like to, be- to beat him. And I couldn't get over there in time to try and do it because another ghost haunted a tile it haunted like our third tile which meant we auto lost the game and we're like ah darn you Wu Fang yeah awesome and yes it is I just want to confirm I questioned myself earlier but you are playing Taoist monks nice Uh, so it is that is what it is very cool All right, so that's what we've been playing recently. Um, I asked Paula what she wanted to discuss for our thematic discussion today, and she came up with something really awesome. So, oh boy, no pressure. I know. I, I honestly, I think this is an interesting discussion to have. So, we've mentioned, I think, many times in the past, like Ambi kind of gets categorized as like an eighteen XX gamer. Obviously, mm, Ambi plays mm-hmm. lots of different games, but like that's kind of how. Uh, people would maybe define her if they had to put her in a box. And for me, I think I've often defined myself as like a thematic gamer, generally, like not a Euro gamer. Um, But there is this omni gamer term and that 
kind of in general would apply to somebody who will play any type of game, theoretically. But what, like, what is an Omni Gamer? Should gamers be put into boxes? Are these definitions useful? Honestly, at this point, I'm not sure. But I think we're going to maybe try and suss that out here today. <laughs> yeah, Ooh, we're going to we're going to dig in deep, see what we can. Yeah, I don't know either. So let's we'll just throw out some things and see see what we come up with. So yeah, um, like, so how would you define what an Omni Gamer is specifically, Paula? I think I would say an Omni Gamer is someone who is equally happy to play Castles of Burgundy and One Night Ultimate Werewolf and, I don't know, a Blood Rage or something. You know, like someone who is like, I love a miniatures game. I love social deduction. I love a dry Euro. I love, sure, pull out the Canizia game. You know, yeah. like and someone who really enjoys any kind of game, I would say, is an, is an Omni Gamer. Okay. So would you consider yourself to be an Omni Gamer? What's interesting is when I first saw the usage of this term I saw it on a t-shirt and I was like wow that's a really cool t-shirt but can I wear that shirt like am I an omni gamer I don't think I am because I like you I tend to think of myself as someone who like oh I'm not a euro gamer I love games with like theme you know I'm give me an Ameritrash game but I don't know how true maybe that's how I started in the hobby but I don't know how true that actually is now like I really enjoy, I just played Concordia for the first time recently and I really liked it. You know, like that's, that's a dry, pretty dry Euro, you know, you're trading goods in the Mediterranean or whatever, you know? So I think maybe I am an Omni gamer. Like, and I just recently started playing like some war games with my husband and I've been enjoying war games. So I think maybe I am an Omni gamer. Okay. Like, I think I'm happy to sit down and play just about anything I mean okay there are some games that I am like maybe maybe I'll skip that one um I do like theme a lot though (sighs) it's tough it is and I think it's getting tougher for gamers to define the types of games they like because game designers and game publishers are making more interesting games that kind of blend these more traditional tropes together in ways that we haven't seen before. So, and I think for me personally, I think I am also an Omni gamer, but I believe that I sometimes define myself more specifically and less broadly as a means to make social interactions surrounding board games more easy for myself. Yeah. And that's a weird way of describing it. But like, I will play, like, I just played Castles of Burgundy for the first time a couple of months ago. Like, I had been Mm -hmm. way behind on Castles of Burgundy. I've still never played it. Oh, you know what? I hadn't. And I was like, I have to play this game. And it's funny because when it comes to dry Euros, Concordia is actually a really good example. The person who taught me Concordia was pretty much the worst person to have taught me that game for a lot of specific (laughs) reasons. And so I hated my experience with Concordia, Mm. but I don't actually know that it was because of the game. So at some point, I am going to give that a try again. Try it again. But, like, when it comes to dry Euros, I have also played some and been like, ugh, I can't. It's just too, like, monotonous. But a lot of the really, the best ones, the the ones that people really gravitate toward, are often very enjoyable, and I like them too. But... If I'm, let's say, at a con and some people are breaking out a heavy Euro game and maybe I'm not in the mood or maybe I really just don't, don't want to sit there for two hours, rather than just saying, no, 
I don't want to play that with you. Because that, I think, sometimes feels... Like, yeah. Most people, especially people that I know and I'm already friends with, would be like, that's totally fine. But I think uh, for me as a person, I don't want to just tell people no. So I'll be like, oh, well, Euro games aren't really my thing. And so that way it's, yeah. it comes off less like... It's less like potentially personal. Yeah. You know, no one's going to be like, oh, you just didn't want to play with us. Because that's not what you meant. Right. Because you don't mean it in a personal way. You just don't want to play that game. And when you say it's like, oh, it's just because of my personal taste. I just I'm not really into Euro games. It does. It takes off that like potential misinterpretation of you just not wanting to play with them or something. Right. And I always I think for me personally, I have that fear of like, I'm okay if I play a game that I don't like, but I'm a person who tends to display my emotions on my face Mm. and it, like, let's say this is a game that somebody really loves. Like, this is their favorite game, or it's a game that they really like. Or, he- heaven forbid, if the designer is playing, you know, oh their my gosh, own game. Right? I have that moment <laughs> of panic where I'm like, I don't want to offend somebody because they love this game or the designers in the game. I actually, it's funny, when we had a BlitzCon back in 20, early 2018, January of 2018, I sat down and played Castell for the first time with Aaron Vanderbeek, who designed it. And oh, nice. I was terrified because it, yeah. I knew that it was Euro-esque. And I was playing with the designer and I was like, oh my gosh, what if I don't like this game? What's going to happen? And I should probably do that more often, I guess, because it was the most delightful experience. And Castell is now one of my favorite games of all time. Yeah. Though that's a great example, I think, because I just recently played Castell for the first time when I was at Shucks, actually. And I think that's a Euro game that actually does a really nice job of marrying its theme with its mechanics. Which does like blur that line of, well, do I? And maybe that is what's made me start to go, maybe I do like Euro games. Is like you were saying, so many of them now are really utilizing the theme to drive their worker placement or, you know, resource management mechanic mechanisms. Yeah. The strong theme to me brings Euro games to a higher level. And that's not to say that trading in the Mediterranean or farming isn't okay as a theme, but we've just seen it so many times that there's no draw for me there based on the theme. So then it has to be amazing mechanics because that's all I care about at that point in a game like that. Whereas with Castell, I kind of genuinely get invested in my team of Castellers and I'm like, all right, guys, we're going to build a really awesome tower right now. Like, and I'm kind of like thinking about them as if almost they were like, a team of people that I was right. helping and yet all of the mechanics are still Euro-based. I'm the same way with games like uh, Pursuit of Happiness. Like that's a worker placement game, but it doesn't mm. feel like it when you're playing it at all. Yeah, it's interesting. And I also think you mentioned like if you're at a con and someone busts out some heavy Euro feeling less inclined to play it. And for me, I also think my taste in games depends a little bit on the context. Like I realized recently you going to more conventions that – While at home, maybe I'm into like pulling out a game that's going to take three hours to play at a con. That's less of what I want because I want to like socialize with as many people as possible. And especially like if people are coming by the table and saying hi and you're seeing friends, it can be hard to really focus in on the game. And so I found myself playing a lot more like light games or party type games, types of games that I would play less normally on a game night that suddenly at a convention, I'm like, oh, this is 
perfect for this because it's allowing me to have a social interaction with the people I'm here with who I normally never see. And it's allowing me to also be sometimes kind of distracted by other things going on around me because this is not like a focused in context. I mean, that's why I bring out Strike at every convention I go to, basically. Oh, it's so fun. <laughs> You're, so I, I got to teach Strike to Paula earlier this summer, and it was, I you, like, everybody was so excited. And that's, like, my favorite thing about teaching people Strike is, like, all right, if you can get into the silliness of it. It's so great. <laughs> I want it. I, like, started being like, okay, how can I find a copy of this? eBay is your best (laughs) bet, honestly. That's where I've gotten both of my copies is from eBay. And I guess you can technically order it from overseas. Like, it's still in print over in Europe. It's just not here in the States. So it's not impossible to get a copy of of Strike. And you can pick up Impact, which is the newer version. But, like, the arena is not the same shape or size. Uh. So even though you can play Strike with Impact, it's not the same. Yeah, and it was that's a great example too of a perfect like con game, you know, where we're like laughing, we're interacting with each other, we're chucking dice, we don't have to think too hard about our strategy. You know, if someone walks by and says something, you can totally talk to them. Like it's exciting, high energy. For me personally, that's a great con game. Absolutely. And I think something you brought up there was a really good point, too, about, like, the types of games being very situational. I actually somewhat recently came to discover that somebody in my game group who I've been playing games with for years didn't actually have a good idea of the types of games that I like because our game group meets on Thursday evenings. So I've been at work all day and then I have to go to work the next morning. So I tend to only stay for maybe about three hours tops. Yeah. And often I don't want to get into a three hour game because sometimes, you know, like those can run longer or you've got teach time Mm -hmm. set up, take down all of that. So on Thursday evenings, I tend to play mostly light to medium games only. And this Mm -hmm. person thought that that's all I liked because that's all they ever see me playing. And I was like, no, you come over to my house on a Saturday and we'll dig into something really long because that's honestly the, the my like the my, the top of my top hundred games list. Like the first three or four are games that take literal hours to play, and I don't get them to the table very often because my game group is a weeknight group. But yeah, I I didn't even realize that I was kind of almost purporting myself to be a person who only likes light games when in fact I really love long, heavy games. I just have to be in the right place and time to play them. Yeah, you have to be in the right brain space and have the right mental energy to be able to enjoy those games. Yeah, yeah and after yeah. I've been at work all day staring at a computer, like I don't want to dig into a crunchy Euro usually. Yeah, no, me either. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I'm really curious, something that you mentioned as you were um, kind of introducing our topic is whether or not these labels are helpful or hurtful or maybe not hurtful but you know right. like are, are they a good thing are self-labels or us putting labels on other people on the kinds of games they like is it good or not or is it neutral I'd love to kind of explore that that's interesting because I think when we discussed like self-labeling can be helpful to help navigate specific social situations in board games. But I would say labeling other people is generally not helpful, especially if you are labeling them without them having labeled themselves the same thing first. So like earlier when I was like, some people might think of Ambie as an 18xx gamer. She's not. Like she loves 18xx games, 
but that's definitely not all she plays. And by me even saying that, you know, am I contributing to a mindset that would make it difficult for other people to approach her at a con and play a game that wasn't an 18xx game with her. And I think the answer is yes, I'm potentially hindering her and other people's abilities to play games together by categorizing her that way. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that like you make someone potentially unapproachable by thinking, oh, well, they won't like this game. But even if they think they won't like it, even if they've self-labeled as an 18xx gamer and think of themselves that way, Maybe they would like that game. They just haven't opened themselves up to it or haven't had the opportunity to try it because they've been labeled in a certain way and no one has like gone to be like, hey, why don't you play this other kind of game with me and see what you think? Or I think also sometimes these labels come with stereotypes. That's definitely and true. I wonder if it's more harmful in the sense of it's less about me being labeled this way and then not branching out and more like other people are labeled this way and because of that I feel excluded from being able to try that kind of game and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of like 18xx games because I do think there's like a stereotype about war gamers and if I want to try a war game is that something because of that label do I feel welcome trying or am or am I allowing myself to be intimidated by the fact well I've never played an 18xx game and people who play them are really serious about it and you know they're really into these like heavy serious games and and I tend to like you know lighter things and will I be able to hang so maybe maybe I won't try it and now I'm self-blocking myself self-blocking myself that's a lot of the word self but I'm I'm keeping myself out because I've allowed myself to be intimidated by a label on another group. That's really true. And I will say that, like, uh, and I, I apologize to Ambie, I'm talking about her a lot, but I think it's, a, it's an interesting <laughs> piece of context. So Ambie and her husband, Toby, taught me my first 18xx game. And I will say, without a doubt, if you ever want to learn an 18xx game, and you happen to be in the same place as Toby, he is the best teacher of any game I have ever encountered in board games. He is... I can't even completely describe why. He is clear and also patient and also tailors the teaching to you in a way that like feels super natural. And I was able to, when I played with them, 18xx games are not my thing. I have discovered after playing one, it is not a thing that I am going to enjoy on a regular basis. But I'm really glad I played one because I wanted to be able to understand the context of the thing that Ambie loves. So when she talks about them, I'm not sitting here going, I don't know what she's saying. But yeah, Toby is a wonderful teacher. And I think that's important. Whether it's 18xx games or war games or miniatures games or anything that is that comes with some kind of a barrier to entry or a stigma or a stereotype, finding someone who is kind of willing to be your your guide, so to speak, can be really beneficial. Because yeah, going up to a group of strangers at a convention, you don't know if your experience is going to be good or bad. And that's based on both the game itself that you're not familiar with and the group of people that you're not familiar with. So there's a lot of variables there. And I think that's a good example of why I didn't like Concordia. The, the more years that have passed between my play of Concordia and now, I think it was 2015 when I was taught Concordia. It's been four years. And as time has passed, I've realized more and more that the person who taught it, 
I believe is the reason that I hated it. Mm, yeah. And I feel bad because now my experience of that game, now I've had, I've been speaking negatively about Concordia for all of that time. And there is a chance that I might not like it in the end, but honestly, I would be shocked if I actually hated the game. Yeah, sometimes it really is so like group dependent or like who are you playing with and we have specific games that will say you know what this is a really great game but you have to have a specific kind of group to play it and have a good time with it I think actually social deduction games I think that is so true of very much so you know I recently was playing a social deduction game and I played it twice back to back with two different groups and I enjoyed my experience with the second group more because in the first group I felt like there were some personalities that it just felt like people social deduction is so tricky because you can really take things personally or you can come off as taking it personally because you're being accused of something and then voted out of the game you know like potentially and when it starts to feel personal it feels really like not fun but if you can play with a group of people who are like oh it doesn't matter like whatever and they let it roll off their back then that's better so like gauging your group makes such a big difference for your enjoyment of a game, I think. Absolutely. When it comes to social deduction specifically, I know a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't like social deduction games. I won't play them at all. And I think that they might be missing out because publishers have been coming out with games that are social deduction games, but feel different and have less of the stress and pressure of some of the older social deduction games. Like to me, pure werewolf is really intimidating to a lot of people, myself included. And I like social deduction games, but with the kind of open structure of werewolf and the feeling that you really need to be actively speaking and lying, that's tough to do. Whereas a newer game like Detective Club, I think it came out last year, Detective Club, you don't have to... The the lies are easier to disguise because you have cards in front of you already and you just kind of have to make them fit the narrative And that's easier for most people to do, I would assume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Oh, that sounds fun. I haven't played that one. Oh, I gosh. I just played it for the first time a few weeks ago. I really like Detective Club. Yeah, so like uh, one person writes down a word on all of the player boards, except for one, leaves that one blank, passes them out to everybody. So everybody knows what the word is except for one person. But then instead of having to say things out loud about the word you're actually playing cards from your hand. So the person who doesn't know what the word is has to play both of their cards without knowing. Then after everyone has played their cards, the word is revealed publicly and everyone has to explain why they chose the cards they chose. So you you know oh, the answer. Oh, interesting. So then you can start to BS when you have to go into your explanation. Yep. Oh, that sounds great. It is. It's really interesting. All right. Well, I would say we're both Omni gamers and people can define themselves however they want. And... Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Even if you define yourself a certain way, maybe be open to trying something else because maybe you think you're an Ameritrash gamer, but actually you also like Euros and then your name would be Paula Deming. (laughs) (laughs) That is a really good point. So Paula, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, If people wanted to reach you, where would they be able to do that? Oh man, if you want to reach me, I'm Twitter's probably the best place and you can find me in two places on Twitter. If you want to see just like board game related stuff, you can follow me at things get dicey on Twitter. If you want to see me talk about like also all the other things I'm always doing, which is a lot because I can't say no and I'm way too busy. That's at Paula Deming, which is my name and that is spelled P-A-U-L-A-D-E-M. 
I-N-G. It's just one M in Deming. Uh, yeah, you can follow me there. And from there, you'll find access to all the other things like my YouTube and my Instagram and my whatever. So and yeah, yeah, definitely make sure to follow Things Get Dicey on YouTube because that is where all of the board game comedy is coming from. And it is awesome. So thank you. And a new uh, I don't know exactly when this episode will go up. But as of the moment we're recording it, the next Things Get Dicey episode is coming out oh I just got really nervous in a few days I think oh so, so. It, will, it will have been released by the time this episode comes out so no stress it's already happened so you've seen it it's already happened and didn't you love it it was amazing it great <laughs> we do a lot of this like talking from the future and the past kind of stuff but yeah this episode will air on uh November 7th so you will ah yes so yes new episode came out just a couple of weeks ago so head to things get dicey's YouTube channel check it out and then head over to Twitter and tell Paula how amazing it was because I know that if she's like me or anybody else hearing that positive feedback means a lot so it does mean a lot thank you so much no problem (laughs) and that's it for this week's board game blitz visit our website boardgameblitz.com for video and blog content as well as to get links to all our social media pages this episode was sponsored by gray fox games kicking yourself for forgetting to back the kickstarter campaign for after the empire i've got good news for you you can still pre-order the game at grayfoxgames.com Gray Fox Games, quality games cleverly crafted. If you're enjoying the show, you can rate and review us on your podcast provider or consider becoming a patron. For as little as $1 a month, you can unlock access to unedited episodes and our private Slack channel, which lets you chat with us and other Blitzketeers directly. Head to patreon.com slash boardgameblitz to become a patron today. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Morrow. Technical support provided by Toby Mao. Board Game Blitz is part of the Dice Tower Network. Until next time... I don't care if your game's new, this game's great and that game too, I will play them all with you, it's all games that I love. Bye everyone! And Mark Evan Jackson, Mm -hmm. who plays Sean in that show and also hosts The Good Place, the podcast, has spoke... Spoken? (laughs) Mark Evan Jackson has talked some war games with my husband and I'm, my cat is making, is going crazy behind me. If any, I don't know if anyone, if the microphone's picking it up, but he was literally just like in the background. You know, that's not what you mean when you're like, I'm not into that game. It's not the, oh my gosh. Cats, are you serious? Y'all got to, I'm going to kick you out of this room if you're going to keep being like that. It's fine. <laughs> Holy moly. Absolutely. And when it comes to social deduction, deduct- <laughs> for as little as $1 a month, you can unlock, un- uh, this is Ambie's part normally. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm starting over at that paragraph. It's alliteration time, everyone. Last episode, we asked you to retheme a game about naval war for animals with blue rear ends who keep opening and closing their eyes. What game was that, Paula? That was Blinking Baboon Battleship. This is one of the more amusing ones I've done recently. I really (laughs) like that one a lot. All right, so this episode, your alliteration puzzle, again, remember, it's going to be three words all starting with the same letter. We are asking you to retheme a game about painting beautiful landscapes for baby cats who act a little wacky. Good luck, everyone.